1960s, labor unions in the United States achieved and then relatively quickly bypassed their apex moment in terms of the number of workers who belonged to such organizations. I want to say up front that there are arguments to be made in favor and against labor unions, and those arguments will sometimes be different based on whether you're one of the workers or an employer who works with a union-heavy workforce. There are also, importantly, benefits to having happy union workers at a business that you run, and there are potential downsides to being in a union as a worker. It's not a clear-cut thing that always slants one way or the other in every situation and for every person. The core idea behind a union, though, is that if all the workers in a particular industry or working for a particular company are just a collection of individuals, they can very easily lose their negotiating leverage when pitted against the, at times, life-and-death power the company wields over them. If that company is able to turn people into undifferentiated cogs in a machine, what's to stop them from whittling pay down and down and down until it's at the lowest possible wage that any sane or semi-sane human would accept? And what's to stop them from keeping those wages artificially low forever? Because they can. And in some cases because their responsibility as the head of the company requires that they earn more and more money, even at the expense of those workers. Other, similar entities might step in and companies might start competing with each other for scarce skilled workers at some point. But especially in employer-favoring economic conditions, decades can pass before that moment in an ebb-and-flow economic situation returns. And in the meantime, workers would only have the choice between what amounts to starvation wages or literal starvation. The slow but steady watering down of social safety nets here in the United States beginning around this time and culminating decades later, only added to this problem. Workers who had other options than taking those jobs that paid those starvation wages might be more capable of negotiating or of waiting out the employer until they upped the pay to something more reasonable, something more than barely survivable. But without those welfare programs in place, their options were generally homelessness and potential starvation, or taking the most meager of paychecks in exchange for at times back-breaking, mind-numbing, or dehumanizing work conditions. Unions, then, allow workers in a particular region, industry, or company to band together and negotiate as a collective. Working in this way gives them the option of leaving the office or factory or fields en masse, which in turn gives them leverage over their employers. Don't want to pay us what we're worth? Want to take all the profits for yourself benefiting from our work without cutting us in? Well, then we will walk out on you and your fields and your factories and your offices. All of your infrastructure will be empty of employees. Unions, at times, have become borderline militarized to ensure this solidarity holds in the face of stern pushback from oppositional employers. If the employers try to bring in ringers or convince scabs, people who are willing to break with their union to work, are willing to cross the union line for short-term benefit for that small paycheck, unions will sometimes stand in those workers' way or even threaten or beat them. If the union's negotiating position is to be upheld, it's important that the employer cannot function without their union workers' efforts. 
This is why unionists and the owners of the businesses where they work will often have very different ideas about who is the good guy and who is the bad guy in these sorts of scenarios. Difficult choices are often made on both sides, with each perceiving themselves to be the good guy, being oppressed or mistreated. A new employer-benefiting tactic emerged in the late 60s, though, that seemed to substantially reduce the threat that unions posed to companies. The National Labor Relations Act, which came into effect in 1935, enshrined the right to unionize, but also determined that each new location, each new field or factory or office, would need to unionize individually, rather than workers in a particular industry, like tailors or iron workers, being able to unionize as a bloc. This meant that unions were relatively smaller and more regional, and it meant that there were a lot more and far smaller union elections taking place on a regular basis. Beyond the world of unions, Republican presidential candidate Barry Goldwater and the Democratic governor of Alabama, George Wallace, began to make skillful use of what became known as coded or dog whistle language, language that certain people would understand more completely without them having to spell out everything that they were implying. And they used this language to imply, to white Southerners in particular, that African Americans and Latino Americans are lazy, are unskilled, or stupid, and are dragging good, wholesome, manly white Americans down with their shiftlessness. This whisper campaign, which was eventually picked up by other politicians and public figures when it became clear that it allowed them to attain popularity amongst a large and powerful demographic, it and its impact was both pernicious and devastating. Unions began to weaken and break up as white workers began to see non-white workers as not being worth their time or attention, as being different, as being less than. Something that, despite the country's history with slavery and racial segregation, had traditionally been somewhat less of an issue within unions. The color of a person's skin meant less on a day-to-day -day basis than the fact that they worked hard alongside you and had your back on the union picket lines. This division led to a cascade effect in which unions became less powerful, less prominent in workers' lives, less of a vital attribute in the workers' own minds, and that shrunk the unions, which made them less important to politicians as a group that had to be catered to. That, in turn, led to less labor-favoring rhetoric and, with time, fewer union-favoring laws on the books. A weaker position in the world of politics and economics often leads to an ever-weakening position because of that spiral. As the United States economy grew and grew, these smaller, isolated, less powerful, and internally divided unions were not able to keep up. Fewer unions were able to get started in the first place, and those that did were not able to acquire the same leverage as their forebearers did just a few decades previous. The legal system had changed, the public sentiment around unions had changed, and the demographic presuppositions that race was a more vital label than economic status and the type of work that you did had also changed. This is a radically simplified version of just one story amidst the complex and rich history of labor unions, but it brings us to an interesting moment in history during which a few other concepts, which are what I'd like to focus on today, were being developed. The first, demographics, was being invented and iterated by corporations and marketers and think tanks and census bureaus, and the second, identity politics, was coaxed into being and leveraged by groups large and small for purposes selfless and pragmatic, 
resulting in outcomes that many of us would consider to be massive victories, but also outcomes that are a little bit fuzzier, and which in some cases may even run completely counter to the original intentions of those who decided to carve up humanity in this way. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The principle of divide and rule, or as it's more commonly phrased today, divide and conquer, which we saw in the breaking up of unions in the United States in the mid to late 20th century, it's not a new principle. The theory goes that if you can break up concentrations of power that oppose or that might oppose you, your concentrated power will then grow with less resistance and can be wielded with less chance of pushback. The original maxim Divide and rule has been attributed to Philip II of Macedonia, a conqueror in his own right, but also the father of Alexander the Great, one of history's most well-known and prolific conquerors. But it's been reworded and reworked to apply in many different time periods, from Rome's Caesar to France's Napoleon to the U.S. founding father, James Madison. On the tactical level, the strategy of divide and conquer typically involves four main focuses— creating and or amplifying divisions between smaller tribes within groups that might oppose you, helping out those who might support or cooperate with you, even if they're not going to be your allies in the long term, creating an atmosphere of distrust and hatred between leaders of other groups, and figuring out ways to encourage wasteful expenditures of time, energy, and resources amongst other groups, but also potentially within your own group if there are other people with opposing loyalties within your team who might utilize your own systems to eventually usurp you and take your throne. In other words, always be weakening anyone and anything that might someday pose a risk to you and utilize differences and perceived differences between people to cause rifts that will keep them from ever ganging up on you. Make sure that they see each other as the enemy rather than seeing you as the enemy. This strategy is perhaps most obviously useful when it comes to warfare, but it has also been a sharp and well-used weapon of colonialist nations. The British Empire used it against India, for instance, to pit regional powers against each other, and the Portuguese used it to increase the perceived importance of antique tribal affiliations in order to break apart burgeoning African powers that might have done them harm if left to grow and strengthen. The Mongols also utilized this strategy to great effect, dividing up newly conquered regions and placing foreign leaders at the top of local ruling hierarchies so that existing regional groups would struggle against each other rather than against the Mongols. Not all divisions between groups are the consequence of manipulation from canny strategists looking to enrich themselves, of course, but it's more common than you might think. And even in the cases where the rifts emerge naturally, you'll often soon find someone latching onto that rift, doing their best to amplify it, to milk it for their own benefit. All that said, the article that I want to start with today comes from the Washington Post, and it's entitled, Different Democratic Controversies, Same Influence, Identity Politics. This piece covers a small collection of recent stories revolving around the flood of United States 2020 presidential contenders that have emerged within the Democratic Party, and how a great many of the stances that they are taking, or the brands that they are building, can be at times loosely and at times more directly 
categorized as identity-related. One example is Senator Elizabeth Warren's years-old claim of having a small percentage of Native American heritage, and Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's statement about women in politics. There's a quote in this piece from an interview that AOC did with The Intercept in which she says, quote, It's important that we don't ignore the power of identity because it is very powerful, especially for women, especially for the rage of women right now, end quote. The controversy here is that in the minds of some, it's counterproductive to focus on women in politics because, well, women only make up about 51% of the population of the planet. Similarly, focusing on any particular racial identity group, economic class, regional heritage, faith, or anything else really, is likewise not optimal because it excludes a huge portion of the electorate and of humanity. This strategy of reaching out to individual groups, though, has proven at times to be incredibly effective. Mobilizing one group does not necessarily mean antagonizing another, especially if the group being mobilized has been traditionally oppressed or relegated to second-class citizenship in one or more of a variety of ways. This effectiveness, as much as anything else, has led to an increase in the use of this identity-focused approach to politics, and has earned it a label that itself is not new, but which does have some relatively new connotations because of today's political climate, and that label is identity politics. The term identity politics has been around and used to address this divide and amplify political approach since at least the 1970s, and one of the earliest use cases was in a statement released by a Boston-based black feminist lesbian organization called the Kambahi River Collective. This group is perhaps most well-known for the statement in which they first used this term, in which they outlined how identity could be used by political organizers to rally people with shared traits around common causes that they otherwise might not feel particularly connected to, that they might not feel is their fight, is their concern. Also of note, especially today, this document described a fissure between feminism as it was being practiced by white women, and how that feminism did not always include or fully take into account the more specific experiences and needs of women of color. A portion of that statement that is particularly relevant here, I think, from the introduction Quote, the most general statement of our politics at the present time would be that we are actively committed to struggling against racial, sexual, heterosexual, and class oppression, and see as our particular task the development of integrated analysis and practice based upon the fact that the major systems of oppression are interlocking. The synthesis of these oppressions creates the conditions of our lives. As black women, we see black feminism as the logical political movement to combat the manifold and simultaneous oppressions that all women of color face, end quote. And then from a little further on in that piece, quote, black feminist politics also have an obvious connection to movements for black liberation, particularly those of the 1960s and 1970s. Many of us were active in those movements, civil rights, black nationalism, the Black Panthers, and all of our lives were greatly affected and changed by their ideologies, their goals, and the tactics used to achieve their goals. It was our experience and disillusionment within these liberation movements, as well as experience on the periphery of the white male left, that led to the need to develop a politics that was anti-racist, unlike those of white women, 
and anti-sexist, unlike those of black and white men. End quote. What they've done here in this piece, then, is take two existing groups, around which lines, borders, were already drawn, and they've created additional borders within them, segmenting out an entirely new group, the consequence of a Venn diagram-like division of overlapping and non-overlapping pieces. Rather than adopting existing labels wholesale, labels that only partially addressed their concerns and priorities, they picked through the beliefs and approaches of these groups and others, selected the portions that made sense to them and the people they believed they represented, and created a new group, a new label, a new identity from those pieces and from other pieces that were not being represented by anyone quite yet. I think it's possible, even if this particular subgroup does not appeal to you, if you don't agree with their positions on things, to appreciate the desire and will to carve out your own space in this political and cultural landscape. I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to these last few years who have told me that they are Democrats or Republicans before going on to tell me all the things that they disagree with or are outright embarrassed by when it comes to their own chosen party and how that party behaves or the specific things that their party platform supports. Creating a new identity in this way is kind of like creating a new political party that has all of the things that you want and none of the things that you don't. And it often means doing so in a very clear-cut way. This is what we're fighting for, and it won't necessarily matter to you or even be something that you've ever thought about. But nonetheless, it is something that we will be putting our weight behind. This is a thing now, a label that some people will be wearing. It is a tribe, even if it is a small one. The thing about tribes, though, about creating a new group in this way, is that you cannot create a new in-group without creating a new out-group. When you say, this is a group focused on feminist issues, you potentially lose folks who do not consider themselves to be feminists. When you say, this is a group focused on black feminist issues, you potentially ostracize white feminists. When you say, this is a group focused on black feminist lesbian issues, you maybe turn away some straight black feminists who might have otherwise had your back. Some people who do not fit within those specific confines will absolutely still get what you are saying and agree with you without needing to themselves fall within the category or categories most affected by the topics in question. It's possible for me, a straight white guy, to care about what happens to the queer black female community, for instance, even though none of those labels apply directly to me. But especially since there are so many ultra-specific, identity-focused groups out there these days, it becomes an increasingly difficult sell the more focused you become. It's also important to recognize that even if someone might agree with the tenets of a particular group, were they to be exposed to their beliefs in a particular context, in a particular way, that because of the nature of these fractures and how they are typically presented by necessity, more divisions than might otherwise exist come to exist because of how they are defined and expressed. What that means in practice can be demonstrated using the text from that statement that I quoted earlier. In it, the Kambahi River Collective said, as black women, they reference the white male left. They say they need to develop politics that's anti-racist, unlike those of white women, and anti-sexist, unlike those of white and black men. It's fairly clear, I think, what these statements mean in context. They are attempting to develop a political philosophy that focuses on these things that are often ignored, or at the very least not primarily addressed by other groups that have other concerns. 
But because of the way this type of exclusion and refocusing is presented, and in some ways must be presented, it can seem to be not a statement of priority, but rather an attack on others. Instead of simply drawing new borders and clarifying one's position and perspective, it can seem to those who do not share those precise traits to be a public shaming, a critique of all other potential perspectives and focuses. And in some cases, those things will be true. But the point is that it's very difficult to carve out new territory, to say, I am going to focus on these other things because no one else is, without making the latent claim that the existing models, the existing political philosophies and identities are not serving you, are failing you, and are therefore incomplete and flawed. Whether or not they are intended to be so, then, the establishment of new identities and sets of politics around them can come across as declarations of war. And even more disconcerting, it can feel like a declaration of war from within one's own borders, from within existing groups, existing identities, which makes them seem not just threatening, but also a little backstabby, even when viewed in the macro. That's clearly not the case. But going back to the main thread of conversation here, identity politics is the fracturing of larger groups into smaller groups for the purposes of better serving those smaller groups and their very specific needs. And for the past decade, but even more so these past few years, I would argue, this strategy has proven to be both a superpower and a weakness for the Democratic and further left progressive candidates here in the United States in particular. Right-leaning politicians have used the concept to take potshots at their more liberal opponents, painting them as being hateful, and prejudiced toward white people, toward men, toward the, let's be honest here, the broadly, traditionally more privileged and power-wielding members of society. But at the same time, those on the left have been able to build immense political interest and participation in locales that have been traditionally uninterested for a variety of reasons, certainly, but in part because these communities that are now showing up to the polls in larger and larger numbers have not been catered to by the major political parties and politicians in the past. Their specific needs have only been tangentially addressed when they were addressed at all. Now, though, today, these more specific groups are being seen, or at the very least being spoken to directly. And that would seem to be an excellent way to get folks out to vote, at least when compared to giving them just two options, neither of which seems to suit them particularly well, with one of them being maybe a little less bad for them and people like them than the other. Now, I do want to note here before moving on that almost always the outcries from folks about how harmful identity politics is to society and politics, whether these critics are on the left or the right, these are almost always people who themselves are also using identity politics to rally a group of people. Some of the loudest and most ardent opponents of the current progressive political use of this strategy, for instance, are conservative politicians who are themselves appealing to a predominantly white, Christian, traditional values-based voting bloc and identity. So while I'm sure this isn't the case 100% of the time, almost always, when you hear someone shouting loudly about how identity politics is ruining society or democracy, what they're really saying is, this new group that has been identified is an excellent villain for me to use for the purposes of reinforcing the boundaries around my existing identity group. Or, in some cases, this new identity group is stealing away people from the identity group that I am leading or a part of, and I don't like that. That latter, 
thought process is more likely to belong to left-leaning politicians who are seeing their identity being carved up into smaller, more precisely defined identities, and the former is more likely to be uttered by folks on the opposite side of the political spectrum, at least in this particular case. So that's the big picture story of what's happening here in this specific instance. There are a lot of political points to be scored by setting up other identity groups as the villain for your identity group. There's a lot to lose when your identity group splinters into smaller identity groups. But there's also potentially a lot to be gained for folks who are able to carve out new, custom-tailored identities for people like themselves. People with traits and experiences and concerns that have not been typically served or addressed by the other larger, less focused identity groups that we've had up until this point in history. I'd like to address a few other angles of this topic, too, that don't tie directly into this particular story, but which form kind of the meta-narrative in which the story takes place. First, labels in general, identities that we take on, serve as shorthand for who we are when we are expressing our identities to others, but also when we are defining ourselves to ourselves. Ask someone who they are, and it's a fair bet that they will tell you about their political affiliation, their faith, the school they attended, the sports team that they cheer for, or some other label-based identifier that is not them-specific, but rather a broader label that they apply to themselves, along with all those other labels. And then at the center of that label collection, the overlap of all of those labels looks like something that is vaguely them-shaped. And most of us tend to do this same thing, defining ourselves in terms of pre-built labels constructed by others, because the amount of time and resources invested in these labels, these identities, is vast and will almost always overwhelm a normal individual's perception of self. It's difficult to fully know oneself, but it's easy to say, I use Apple products, I cheer for the Mets, I vote Republican, I attend a Protestant service on Sundays. And we've been trained to do this, and it allows us to approximate our actual beliefs and priorities without having to get too specific about any of these things in any given context. It's easier to say that you're a Democrat or a Tory than to go through each and every political issue one by one and give your own well-thought-out opinion on each and every component, especially in normal everyday conversation. This shorthand to which we default, though, flattens us. Few people agree with 100% of what their political party says and does, but it's typically a closer fit than the alternatives. And so it's still useful in those instances where we are trying to describe ourselves quickly. But like sharing a zip code rather than an address, it does quickly express the general area that we inhabit, but it does not give the exact patch of ground that we are currently standing on. And as a consequence, it is not as specific and us-shaped as most of us might assume. Second, the divide-and-conquer strategy that I mentioned earlier applies in this space and allows outside interests to create new identities and amplify existing ones as a means of breaking up focuses of power that might oppose their own power. It's difficult to draw a straight line between interests and actions with this sort of thing, but there has been a fairly clear effort by conservative political entities here in the United States to increase the perceived divides between the many identity groups that typically vote Democratic to keep them from cohering when election time rolls around. There's evidence that the Bernie Sanders wing of the United States left was promoted by right-leaning interests in this way during the 2016 election. 
which, importantly, does not mean that Sanders or his supporters were antagonistic toward progressive politics, but rather that they were a convenient identity within that larger group to focus on, to empower, and to further separate from other liberal identities in order to fracture their power loci, making it more likely that folks from that specific facet of the left would see other Democratic politicians and voters as enemies when push came to shove and Hillary Clinton took the party's nomination during that election cycle. The idea was to use that tiny crack that already existed in order to break it open into a massive gulf at the right moment. Now, it's anyone's guess how effective these efforts actually were. I have not seen any particularly convincing numbers personally, and again, this is a really difficult thing to measure, but it's notable that it was happening to begin with, and if you look around, you can see similar tactics being applied on both the left and the right, and throughout the middle gray area portion of the political spectrum, here in the United States and around the world. Whether or not we can prove that it's effective right now, a lot of people with a lot of money and other types of leverage seem to think it's effective enough to invest in pretty heavily. Third, modern tools like sophisticated demographics, big data processing, and even what might be loosely called artificial intelligence can allow companies, political parties, and other interests to carve us up into smaller and increasingly refined groups and to target us individually based on these groupings. What this means is that these companies, these parties, these individuals can say the right things to the right people at the right times, and their alignment, the ability to say the right words and use the proper communication methods in the right situations, will be increasingly accurate. This doesn't imply that they will necessarily serve these more granular groups any better, but it does mean that they can say the right things and say them in the right way, using the right words via the right channels to appeal to us to make us believe, at least, that they are on our side and understand our positions. The optimist in me likes to believe that this capacity will also lead to real action on behalf of these smaller groups. Rather than just talking the talk, some of these interests will walk the walk, and we will see new companies serving the heretofore largely ignored needs of heretofore largely ignored groups, with politicians and other powerful entities doing the same. I suspect this will be a very mixed bag, though, with the majority of expended effort in this space largely used for superficial catering to these groups, rather than producing actual understanding and support, as is implied. They might use the right keywords and be able to find the right influencers to reach a particular group, but that doesn't mean, when it comes time to pass legislation, that these more niche identity groups will be served in any more practical way than before. With time, competition in this space could mean that these groups will become savvier and better able to sort the posers from the legitimate, the people who might serve them, rather than the people who are reaching out to try to weaponize them. They might come to see well-targeted ad campaigns and keywords for exactly what they are. In the short term, though, we will likely be seeing a lot more ultra-focused messaging, only some of which will ever be backed up by action. Another example of these identity groups being used against those who perceive themselves to belong to these groups. The labels being used to manipulate those who wear them, rather than empowering those who wear them. Fourth, it can be very difficult to change one's perception of one's own identity or of the identity of others. Cognitive dissonance is the discomfort we feel when we are exposed to new information that conflicts with the way we currently see the world. 
And when we're told that the groups we've previously used to organize the world into friend and foe are not the true groups, or not the only groupings that we could potentially use, that can be so uncomfortable to think about that we ignore the information that tells us that's the case. Or we discount it as being disinformation or fake news or whatever other terms we might want to use in an attempt to prove that we do not have to pay it any mind. It's important that we are able to adjust our perspectives over time and change our minds based on new information, including experiences, but definitely also raw data. Firmly held senses of identity can make that more difficult, even though it gives us a shorthand for operating and understanding the world, from one perspective at least, in the short term. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't have a sense of identity, or multiple identities, but it is an indication that it's probably a good idea to hold on to them loosely, lest we miss out on valuable context and perspective shifts, as a consequence of our desire to maintain our perceptual status quo, to remain part of a group despite no longer actually believing in the tenets or purpose statement or actions of that group. And fifth, it's important to recognize that wearing these labels, these identities, can make us the target of people from within the groups, as well as those from without. It's far easier to control a group of people when you're able to get them to wear a label that you define. And over time, this can lead to tunnel vision perspective, groupthink, and tribalism. It can cause us to see anyone not of our perceived in-group who do not wear the label that we wear as the enemy rather than as our fellow human beings with whom we have far more in common than we have differences. The desire to control a particular group, then, can allow demagogues and other charismatic leaders to use us for their own purposes, to erode away our individuality by encouraging us to fit more cleanly and perfectly under the cookie-cutter of the labels that they define, and to manipulate us into using a collection of tried-and-true methodologies, including loyalty tests, shared suffering, and the othering of those who we are told are different from us. The very things that make us powerful, as a tribe, in other words, can also make us weak, as a species, and as individuals. Wielding identity in this way is kind of like holding a sword by the blade. It's a weapon that you can use to further your own aims, certainly, but it can easily and often does cut both ways. The book that I'd like to recommend today is one that's been on my radar for a while, but one that I only recently got around to reading. It's called Trust Me, I'm Lying by Ryan Holiday. And this is a book that gets into the nitty-gritty of being a media manipulator from somebody who is a media manipulator and somebody who has begun to feel bad, at least in his telling, about the work that he has done and the manipulations that he has wrought. Now, the stories themselves about the tricks that were used and the methods employed is interesting all into itself. In my opinion, it's weakened a little bit when he takes some personal stabs at people who had done him wrong over the years, but the strongest part of the book, in my opinion, is where he gets into the subject of why media manipulators are able to do what they do. And particularly, he gets into a lot of the topics that we talk about here on this show on a regular basis. The idea that incentives are misaligned with the intended beneficial outcomes of a lot of these platforms, a lot of these publications. And because of that, there are a lot of ways to get people who have the best of intentions to do bad and negative things if you can tug on those incentives in just the right way. 
You can then manipulate people who, again, have the best of intentions in a lot of cases to get them to do things that are beneficial for you, but perhaps misleading or harmful to other people. Now, I'd say some of this book, Take with a Grain of Salt, it's hard to tell, especially because of the nature of who the author is and the type of things that he does. It's difficult to know exactly what some of his motivations might be, but having looked into a whole lot of that latter topic myself, I think he got a whole lot of it right, and he has an interesting perspective from which to view it as one of the people who has taken advantage consistently and in very creative ways over time of these weaknesses that are in some of these communication systems and business systems. If any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Trust Me, I'm Lying by Ryan Holiday. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsnotethings.com. I am currently on a speaking tour. You can find out if I'm coming to your neck of the woods and pick up tickets, if applicable, at becomingtour.com. And you can find my newest project at somethoughtsaboutliving.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I am at Colin is my name pretty much everywhere, though I'm just Colin Wright on Facebook. Thank you so very much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Thank you.